Okay, good evening, everyone. Um, this is Donna Pomerantz, and I am very happy to introduce tonight, briefly, our speaker, Mr. Ron Brooks. Ron Brooks is um, currently residing in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, Ron has an extensive background in transportation, has a very good working understanding of uh, all transit options um, as a user of transportation as well as um, working uh, with a transportation provider. And um, I'm very pleased that uh, he's here with us tonight. Um, Ron has also worked um, in transportation as well in uh, California. So uh, Ron has definitely uh, worked in the field of transportation in quite a number of states and is also very active in the American Council of the Blind as its chair of the Board of Publications, as well as being very active in the special interest affiliate ACB families. And so um, this is a brief introduction of Mr. Ron Brooks for all of you this evening, and, and, and he'll share more about himself with us once we begin the dialogue. So, Dr. Bill, hand it back to you. Thank you very much, Donna. That's a wonderful <clears throat> introduction. And, Ron, Welcome to the program. We're really, really very, very excited to have you on, and this is probably the largest audience that we've ever had, so the information that you have to share is something everybody wants to hear. Welcome. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about how you first got involved in this topic or this area of transportation. Sure. So... Um, as Donna mentioned, uh, I am a person who is blind. As a child, I had low vision um, and lived my whole childhood kind of through high school as the person who used a large print and who got around um, with rather poorly with my eyesight. And when I was uh, in high school, I lost the rest of my eyesight and I was taking orientation and mobility. And back in those days, it was in the, the uh, mid mid 1980s. Um, we were taken out by our O&M instructor, or I was taken out by my O&M instructor, and put out on the, the, the city buses where I lived in Muncie, Indiana. And one of the exercises that um, occurred regularly at that time, this before the ADA, was um, you know you would have to. Uh, you know, get off the bus at a predetermined place and, and run a predetermined route and end up at a predetermined spot. And this is back before stop announcements and drivers announcing stops and all that kind of stuff. So when I got off the bus and determined that the side of the country road where I was located was not the predetermined place where um, I was supposed to have gotten off, um, I then had quite a bit of a dilemma because, um, you know, I wasn't where I needed to be. In those days, the instructor would allow this to happen. They didn't stop you. <laughs> so you had to sort of figure this stuff oh, out. Oh, gosh. So from from that really kind of those humble beginnings, it, it occurred to me that transportation was important. I had no interest in it other than just using it. Uh, I went to graduate school <clears throat> in San Francisco at San Francisco State, and um, I spent a lot of time writing the transit system in San Francisco, which is one of the greatest systems in the world and one of the worst systems in the world. 
greatest because it goes everywhere, but worst because at that time, and this is about 1991, 92, um, the, the, you know, the drivers weren't very good. The technology didn't always work. Um, I don't think they really cared if you had a bad experience because there were three other people waiting to take your spot. So I got involved in an advisory committee for the local uh, transportation authority, BART, uh, where, uh, and I really went because the ACB chapter I was attending needed somebody to get involved and attend the meeting. And I got involved, and I found that I really enjoyed it, um, not not just as a user, but as somebody who likes to plan and try to think, figure out how to make things better, I found that it was very interesting to me just to get involved. So I got involved uh, in the industry at that time. Uh, I, I talked somebody into giving me an entry-level planning position. I started working on key stations, uh, which is uh, basically how to make old rail systems more accessible uh, with the ADA, which was, had just been passed at that point. Um, from BART, I went to West Palm Beach, Florida, where I spent four years managing uh, accessibility programs for the transit agency in Palm Beach County, Florida. That included paratransit as, as well as um, fixed route bus and all the things that they did. Uh, I've, I've then spent about 13 years in the private sector doing a, a number of things for a private uh, company that operates internationally and around, you know, around the country and around the world. And for the last four years, I've been in Phoenix uh, at the uh, transit authority here, managing all of our accessibility programs um, and we operate bus, light rail, paratransit, uh, and, and kind of a range of other services. And I've, I've got responsibility for our paratransit operation and also all of the other things, just helping to make sure they're accessible. Wow. that's Boy, you've really been through all, all aspects of it, it sounds like, haven't you? <laughs> I've been through a bunch. Yeah. Well, Ron, do you personally use a guide dog right now, or do you travel primarily with a cane? I do both. Um, I have a guide dog. Um, I also use a cane uh, because I've got an older dog and he needs days off. <clears throat> so um, I do both, and and at different points in my kind of traveling career, I've done I've done both at different times. So, what do you feel are really the first stages that a person who has recently become visually impaired, or perhaps a person that's recently become totally blind? What is really the first step that this person needs to do? Do they need to be identified as, as being classified as legally blind to access a lot of these types of transportation programs? So there are a lot of programs that you do not need to identify yourself to receive. Um, you can certainly, you know, public transit systems are designed now to be accessible, uh, at least to the level that the law requires. And if you have low vision but can um, get around without uh, a cane or, or, a, or a guide dog, you can probably manage on most public transit systems with the, the stops that are announced. Um, in some systems, <clears throat> you'll see, particularly in urban areas, you'll see um, – uh, onboard announcements that also show uh, the uh, information on a screen, and you might be able to manage with that with G with GPS technology on your phone. You can probably manage to some degree to to tell where your bus is just by virtue of where you are and where your phone is. So I think you know there's no requirement, there's no legal requirement certainly, but if you want to take advantage of the assistance that the law requires agencies to provide over and above basically making their equipment accessible, 
then you do need to step out and say, you know, and raise your hand and, and say, hey, I need help. And let me give you an example. Uh, I manage eligibility certification for paratransit here in the region that, that uh, I live in. <clears throat> and we routinely see people who are seniors who are losing their, their eyesight. Very often, those folks don't really identify as a person who has a disability. They identify as a senior who's losing their eyesight because most seniors at some point lose some eyesight. Um, what we tell folks is, you know, we have service, a range of services. Uh, we have reduced fares uh, on our buses for, for a 50% discount. That's a federal law. That's in any transit system if you're a senior or you're a person with a disability. So if you're a senior, you're already entitled. But if you're not 65 and you want those, those discounts, you've got to self-identify as a person that has a disability. Um, I, what I tell people is you never know. There, there's a whole range of services you might need, and the best thing that you can do when you think you might need them is to go ahead, raise your hand, get um, your, in, in our system, it's ADA paratransit eligibility, uh, so that you can then be eligible for a whole range of other services that that kind of cover a gamut of things. So I think there's an advantage. The other thing is a lot of systems, including ours, uh, offers um, training. Uh, to use uh, the buses and the light rail and the different things that are out there, and usually you have to you have to self-identify as a person with a disability to receive that. Usually those services are free. Um, in fact, I'm not aware of anywhere that they charge for, uh, but those are out there, and those are pretty handy because a lot of agencies around the country don't have money uh, to provide this type of training to people unless they're in a rehab program heading for for job placement. So if you're just a senior or just a person who wants to get a little bit of training, um, a lot of times a transit agency might be a good source for that, but you've got to you've got to ask. Now, Ron, how does a person go about finding where the office would be to be able to apply and to qualify for these types of services? There are lots of ways to do it. Uh, the best way, the easiest way, is online. And if a person has access to a phone or a computer, the information is out there. Um, you can I haven't tried it, but I'm betting that if I ask um, our uh, Echo device, I won't say her name because she'll answer, um, she would probably be able to find um, the, the name of the transit agency here in the Valley and get contact information. So getting the information is usually pretty easy. Um, if that is not an option, Certainly, I would assume that in most of our ACB chapters and CCLBI um, affiliates, there are people who know what's going on in their area who can direct people. Uh, so the, the information's there. It's, it's, if you can access your technology, that's probably the easiest way. Uh, if you can't, uh, there are certainly agencies um, that can assist. There are people that can assist. Um, I mean, I think it starts with just wanting to to. You know, asking a friend, asking a neighbor, uh, looking it up. Now, if I wanted to receive orientation mobility services, would I try to receive those services at that same transit authority office, or would I need to try to contact an agency such as the Department of Vocational Rehab? Yeah, typically transit agencies are not going to offer true orientation and mobility services. What uh, if you were to call our our agency and and ask for that? We would we we 
if if it, if the person who took your call was experienced, they would refer you to one of the agencies here in the in the valley that serves uh, folks who are blind or visually impaired. Uh, more likely, they would say we don't provide that service. So that's really a uh, orientation mobility is not transit. Where we draw the line in our program is that a person has to have the skills to navigate safely and independently um, in their environment. What we teach is transit. So, so those are services that you're best that are best thought through a local uh, blindness organization, a local uh, possibly a low vision clinic might be able to give a referral, um, a, a rehab agency. Those are the places that you go for orientation and mobility. Once you receive the orientation and mobility, then you're in a position probably to take advantage of the training that might be out there specifically to use public transit. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier, Ron, that a lot of people are now using their smartphones, which have GPS programs. Uh, if I'm going to be learning how to get around comfortably in my own environment, my own neighborhood and such, uh, what what type of GPS program do you recommend that one would investigate purchasing? There are a lot of GPS programs, and there are a lot of personal preferences. So you can go all the way from the free G, uh, GPS program that comes in your phone. So, And I'm one of those people because I, I've tried different apps, and I've spent money on apps, and I've never really – found one that worked in all situations, um, you know, reliably. Um, I have several, and sometimes I've, I've, I've been known to use two at once because I'm so hopeless that I need, I need, I need second opinions. But um, so I would say you start with what's on your phone, but um, some good apps to look into uh, would be there's an app called Ariadne, and I'm, I'm not even going to try to spell these folks because um, I don't know. They're, they're always misspelled on purpose. Um, there's an app called Navigan, which a lot of these apps are, are, are driving apps, but they've, they've added on pedestrian directions. Um, even the, uh, the uh, map in, in, mapping in the iPhone now will give you transit directions and pedestrian directions. So um, start with what's on your phone that you didn't have to pay extra for, and then you can start to investigate in the App Store or in the Google Play Store, and you'll find... Uh, dozens. Um, I think the best thing to do with an app like that is to talk to people that you know, especially if you're new uh, into the uh, to the uh, uh, smartphone world. You know, talk to people that you know. Talk to people that you trust who 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 are out and about. Ask them what they use and, and take a look at it yourself. There's no substitute for getting for downloading an app, checking it out, and seeing if it works for you. Most of the the uh, non-blindness navigational apps, and I'm going to get to the blindness ones in a minute. Most of the non, non-blindness navigational apps are pretty inexpensive, uh, and you can have them for uh, just anywhere from virtually nothing to a few dollars. Now, there are some blindness-specific apps that are out there. I'm not an expert on them. I don't really typically use them. They tend to be pricier, uh, but they tend to be a little bit more customized. So those would be things like Sendero Lookaround um, is one. Um, there's another one. Uh, I think there's a Trekker product out there, and that might be Sendero, actually. Um, so it, it, there's a, a the Seeing Eye, the Guide Dog School, has an app, a navigational app that they put out. 
Um, these tend to be a little bit more expensive, but they're pretty customized, so you know they're going to be accessible. Uh, you know that they're going to be kind of designed with, with you as a person with a visual impairment in mind. Um, you can also buy hardware. So if you don't want to use your cell phone, you can buy devices like uh, Trekker is a, a product that's out there. I'm not really up to speed on those, um, but there's you know a whole bunch of competing prod products like that that include uh, you know, that are designed for for navigation, and they're expensive, but you know, again they're they're highly customized. They're designed for the purpose that you need them. So if you want that. Um, those are out there as well. Great. Thank you. Now, what is uh, the first step after one learns to walk using a cane and get around in his or her environment? Is the next step that you would recommend that we learn to take the local buses? Or would it yeah. be trains? Yeah. Or what, what would be well, the re recommended order? It depends on your area, and there is no there is no recommended order. Um you know, I think it varies by person, um, and it varies by where you live and where you want to travel. What what I would like to encourage people to do is to figure out all of the resources that are in your community. So if you have a transit system, okay, that's one option. If you have a transit system, you also have a paratransit system, which is the door-to-door -door service designed for seniors and people with disabilities. That's also an option. Uh, there may be a subsidized uh, taxi program or a subsidized, you're starting to see a few subsidized programs for people that use Uber and Lyft if they have disabilities. Those types of services, you know, find out what your options are because transit is good for some trips. It may not be good for all trips. And I don't think you should have to wait. I don't think there's an order. I think it's really a, a case of matching what kind of trips you take with what resources your community has to offer. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. Um, I, you know, of course, we live in a city, um, and it's easier in cities. And I'll talk about the rural kind of maybe separately because it's a little bit different. But, you know, in a city like the one I live in, we have transit. We have paratransit. We have subsidized taxi programs. Um, those are all available uh, to folks with disabilities uh, based on the fact that they have a disability and that they qualify. Uh, you know, transit is great for the recurring trip that you take every single day that you don't want to spend a lot of money on. Um, paratransit is also good. Paratransit uh, costs, typically costs a little bit more than transit. It's, it's a little bit more restrictive. You can't change your travel times as easily. Uh, it, it, it's, it has some you know, some wait time built in because it's a shared ride service usually. So it has some limitations, and it may not be um, ideal, but it, 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 it kind of serves the same purpose as transit. Then you get to the services like the subsidized taxi. Those tend to cost more for the customer, um, but they have a little bit more flexibility. You can call right away. You can get a, a vehicle set to you. You don't have to share the ride. Those are good trips for going, you know, to the store. A transit, it's kind of hard to do a, a, a big store trip on public transit. So um, I like to tell people everything that's out there, make sure they're enrolled in all of it if, if they're qualified, you know, for whatever they're qualified for, and then teach them how to use the different services, which ones are best for which trip. You know, when you talk about the paratransit, um, do they have the same requirements 
to be eligible to receive paratransit where they'll pick you up at the curb and drop you off at the curb. Uh, does one have to be legally blind in order to receive paratransit? Uh, no. So federal, the eligibility requirements for paratransit are established within the ADA, but they are administered locally by transit agencies around the country. And there are over 600 transit agencies around the country. Actually, I think closer to 1,000 now because we've had new ones. Um, And they all do things a little bit different. The law allows for that. What the law says, it's not – the law really avoided categorical medical definitions. So what the law says is not a person who meets this level of visual acuity or this level of physical ability is automatically eligible. What the law says is is that transit agencies have to assess at the extent to which a person is functionally not able to use public transit. So uh, in the old days, that meant sending out an application where we would ask, we being transit, would ask you a bunch of questions to try to gauge when, when you're not able to use public transit. Are there certain situations? Uh, are there certain times of day? Are there certain types of trips where you're not able to do it based on your disability? So under that scenario, a person who is uh, uh, totally blind but who has very, very good travel skills might actually fare uh, better in terms of using public transit than, say, a, a person who's, um, who is low vision but they just discovered that they're low vision and they've never used a bus. Uh, because they haven't had any training and they don't really know what they're doing, they might actually be more eligible than the totally blind person. Um, Over time, the industry has evolved towards uh, direct in-person assessment. So we actually bring people in and uh, either ask our questions face-to-face or uh, have people go through a simulated transit environment. So we actually take people, and we do this in Phoenix, we actually take people out into a simulated transit environment and ask them to complete, you know, the, the tasks of using transit, and we assess whether or not they're able to do it. Um, so in all of the cases, though, what we're really looking at is does this individual have the ability to use public transit based on his or her disability? It's not a definition. It's really more of a functional uh, definition. In our system, I'll tell you that blind people um, – pretty much almost 100% of the time are, are eligible for paratransit. Uh, people who are legally blind, generally speaking, are going to have at least a level of eligibility uh, just based on the fact that there are usually certain times of day, certain light conditions, uh, certain types of trips where uh, you know, being uh, having extremely low vision makes it difficult to use public transit. Great. Uh, where does one apply for that type of paratransit? Is it going to be at the, the same um, transportation office, or where does one it's apply? Typically through the yes, yeah, typically through the public transit agency. Some agencies contract their eligibility to a third party, uh, but all of that information is going to be on the transit agency website because they're the ones who are responsible for um, providing. The you know, providing the service. Now, of course, you know, we talk about websites. Most transit agencies, probably all, have an information number, and you should be able to call for that information as well. 
Is there a limit as to how far that the paratransit might take you? Say, for example, I live in Los Angeles, and if I wanted to go to San Diego, which is about 120 miles away, would they actually travel that far? No. um, Transit, although you could do it in your case, but uh, it would take you a long time. Transit agencies are required uh, to operate paratransit where they operate bus and or light rail service. So it's a, the ADA is a civil right. It entitles people who are covered by the law, people with disabilities, the same protections that everybody else gets. So if the transit system operates in a community, the, the, the theory here is that you're entitled to the same level of service that everybody else in that community gets. Um, in the case of paratransit, the, the law defines that as three-quarters of a mile on either side of a bus route or three-quarters of a mile around uh, a transit station and the, or a rail station, and these definitions are as the crow flies. So it's basically straight-line distance from uh, where transit operates. Um, and also paratransit has to operate when public transit operates. So if your bus system cuts off at 8 o'clock, then so does the paratransit. Now, what you can do, and in your case, it's a good example, and people do this all the time, you can take once, because in the ADA basically says that a person with a disability who's eligible anywhere is eligible for paratransit everywhere uh, as a visitor um, with some limitations. Because of that law, you could actually take the, the LA system to the border with Orange County, transfer and take a trip on the Orange County system to the border with San Diego County, transfer to the North County Transit District, and take a trip on the North County Transit District and transfer to San Diego MTS and take your trip into San Diego. It would take you probably eight to ten hours to do it, but you could do it. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, what wouldn't I, recommend I, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would it would be nice to take one of the other optional transportations that right. that, that are available. Okay. So after we we've talked about the paratransit. You also then mentioned that there are subsidies for mm-hmm. many people with low vision or blindness who may take Uber or Lyft. And tell mm-hmm. us, how do we go about signing up for that? Is that with a public transit authority, or do we actually call Lyft and Uber? Um, if you can find out how to actually call Lyft and Uber, then you should uh, publish that. Um, but, no, it is <laughs> it's almost typically it is, Yeah, I don't know if they have a phone number. It is typically through the transit agency. It could be through a municipality. So it depends on where you live. Everything about transit is local. So if if there's one takeaway people can take away, transit is a local issue. The the federal law does very little except bar discrimination, and it defines what that is. Beyond that, transportation is local. It's planned locally or regionally. Uh, It's funded locally. Uh, it is managed locally. So um, everything is where you live, what community you're in, and what kind of investments they've made. So in some communities, there are programs in place where people who typically it's going to be tied either to your age or to uh, the fact that you're ADA paratransit eligible, or it'll be tied to a paper application that you have to submit separate from your paratransit that basically demonstrates that you have a disability and you have to 
usually in that case attached to medical documentation. Um, depending on your system, once you've done that, there are systems that operate uh, subsidized transportation programs. And the theory behind these is that if we paratransit, the ADA paratransit is highly regulated, so it's pretty expensive to do uh, for the public agency. They, they, they basically, um, a paratransit trip costs the public agency on average around $40 across the country. If you, if you average all the systems, it's about $40 a trip. Um, and the average fare on paratransit is probably in the range of $3 to $4. So transit agencies lose about 90% of the cost of each trip. They have to fund it some other way. So a lot of systems uh, have established these taxi programs, or and now we're, they're tampering. A few agencies are trying to work with Lyft, and uh, particularly Lyft, uh, and to some degree Uber to try to, to do this as well. What they do is they, they try to offer an unregulated service uh, or relatively unregulated that is, that is market-driven because it's cheaper for them. They can actually do that trip for maybe $15 to $20 um, and maybe pass on a little bit of a higher cost to you because it's a more flexible service. So, so those are out there, and they're available to you if you're in a community that offers them. So... It's good to find out. I can tell you some of the large communities. Uh, Denver has one. I don't know where people on this call are from, but um, many of the larger cities have programs like this. They are all different because they are, com I mean, they are completely different from each other. There's no standard model. Uh, some programs give you a percentage off, so you uh, will take a taxi trip and, and the agency will pay 75% you'll pay 25%. Some of these programs allow you to take a trip of a certain distance for a flat fare, uh, and then if you want to go further, you have to pay 100% of the cost above that number. So, if, and that's for example, Denver uh, has a very large program called Accessa Cab that works that way. Uh, in Denver, you pay, uh, I believe it's uh, three dollars, or maybe it's just two dollars. You get to go about uh, up till the cab meter hits eighteen dollars, and then you have to pay the difference. Um, there are programs like that in Orange County. There are some programs like that uh, in some parts of L.A. County. Those might be municipal. Um, there are programs like that in, in um, the Baltimore area. So it kind of depends, you know, where you are, but it's worth looking into and seeing what your community has to offer. And some of those are cab-based, and now Boston, for example, is doing a similar program with uh, Uber and Lyft. And that's the first large one in the country to use Uber and Lyft. Uh, there are some smaller communities that are kind of looking at it and trying to figure out how to do it. They're kind of hard to work with because they're they're tech companies. They they don't see things the same way that transit people see them. So it's taken a little bit of time to get into the market, but we're starting to see that. When people are using uh, Uber and Lyft, and it may be that their fare is going to be more expensive as compared to taking uh, the paratransit. Uh, what What is the way that you recommend most of the people will pay for this? Is is it that they're using cash, or is there a particular type of uh, credit card system that one might use so they don't have to carry as much cash? So all programs are different, uh, again. Uh, however, Uber and Lyft, Typically, unless and, and there are some systems that have created workarounds for some of their specialized programs, but 
generally speaking, if you're using Uber and Lyft, you are putting an app on your phone. You are putting a credit card on your app um, in your profile. And when you use uh, Uber and Lyft, your credit card is deducted whatever fare you owe. Um, most larger company, uh, cab companies now um, have apps as well uh, that work similarly. Uh, there are also a lot of those companies also take credit cards. Uh, transit agencies, in terms of paying paratransit fares, you know, the, the, they're all over the place. There's a lot of places that use cash uh, only. There are a lot of places that uh, use cash, or maybe they sell tickets, which you can purchase um, and use those instead. Uh, there are some systems that uh, require you to establish an account online. Uh, it, it may not be online. You might be able to pay it with a, a check or cash or whatever, but the account is basically tied to, to you online, and so when you take a trip, it automatically deducts the, the cost of the fare. So it really is locally determined, um, but when you get into the Uber and Lyft, that's almost always going to be through your phone. Okay, great. You know, by the way, Ron, uh, are you on a cell phone or a cordless phone? Your phone's breaking up just a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm on a cell phone and I don't have an alternative. So but okay. I'll try to be careful. So well, what I know. was wondering, did you did you move from one part uh, of the house to another? Nope. I haven't okay. moved a muscle. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll just keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> Uh, so, Ron, can you tell us what are some of the latest trends when it comes to uh, the local buses that we might be taking? What are things that you could share with us regarding these buses? Uh, probably the least amount of change in the industry right now is within the bus environment. Uh, buses are pretty, from an equipment standpoint, are pretty stable. They're not changing a lot. The one thing that you are starting to see is a little bit more use of technology for fare payment. So we're starting to see in some systems, and it's still pretty limited, uh, contactless fare payment. So you can uh, download an app for the transit system. You can put a credit card on the app. And when you walk onto the bus, you can um, put your phone next to a reader and it'll, it'll collect your fare. Um, we're starting to see a little bit more um, you see, and, and this isn't really going to affect us a lot, but there's more advertising now. So um, a lot of buses now have technology that, that not only announces the stops verbally, but also displays them on video. Um, ad space is sold on those systems in, in some markets, so you'll see a lot more ad content. Um, and I think the only other thing I would say with the buses is you're seeing a lot of ramps and not a lot of lifts. Um, lifts are pretty much... Uh, going out of the market, uh, at least in the city bus environment, uh, and you're seeing ramps instead. So, And that's probably a, an improvement. By the way, and I didn't mention this, um, any person who wants to board a bus with a lift or a ramp has a legal right to do so. You do not have to prove that you need it. Um, and there are a lot of people who are older who don't like that first step on or off a bus, so you can use a lift or a ramp anytime. Oh, that's good to know because, yeah. It, it, it could be a little bit frightening if you have reduced depth perception. Yeah. But, you know, when you had mentioned that on the cell phone we could have our credit card in there, does the bus automatically give us a discount, or do we have to tell the driver that we are low vision 
and uh, we would like a discount on the bus fare? So if you are paying in cash, typically um, you're, if most systems around the country require you to uh, show a certain form of ID. So if you're 65 or older, um, pretty much if you show your, your, if you have your ID or driver's license or whatever, you can show proof of age and they're good to go. Um, if you're not, then they're going to ask you to get certified as a reduced fare customer. Um, and usually they'll issue you a card, which you can show the driver if the driver is not believing that you are qualified. When you get to the smartphones and you get to having your reduced fare program um, online and, and having your payment, your fare payment online, typically you create a profile in in the um, in the online system that the agency is using, and it can usually associate your um, information with being eligible for the discount fare so that when you use your phone that you've registered with your account, it'll correctly charge discount fares. Um, those systems are still not widely in the market. Um, they are coming, and um, you know those are things that are being talked about now at fair collection and fair management workshops at that, that level of technology. Now, is it a common uh, a common behavior for bus drivers to stop if they see you at a bus stop? In other words, there might be uh, bus number one and bus number 12 and bus number 23 that all pass through the same bus stop. But as a person who's blind, I don't know which bus they are. Yeah, yeah which one it is. And yeah. I've had situations where they've just passed me. Um, so... Two things I would say here, and it kind of depends on where you are. The law requires that if you are at a stop serving multiple routes, every bus has to announce its destination. So if you're at a stop like on the side of the road that happens to be served by two different routes, each bus has to stop if if there's a passenger there and they have to announce their destination. Um, this is not, in my opinion, is not well done in most places. Now, here's the catch. We have a place here in Phoenix. It's our downtown transit center. We've got a, we call it Central Station. There are, uh, it's an entire city block. There are, I don't know, 12 different bus bays where bus, where individual buses park and, and people get on and get off and transfer to other buses. Because those 12 bus bays serve 12 different routes, each bus bay is a, is a single stop serving a single bus. So legally, they don't have to announce themselves. Um, Now, generally they do, but they don't have to. So it's really important for you as a customer to know, am I at a stop that serves one bus, or am I at a great big stop with with different places where different buses park? Um, And that's something that people need to, uh, if they're going to use transit, they they need to know that stuff because a lot of times transit agencies try to do the right thing, but... You know, when you start to talk about what you can expect, um, what you can expect is I always try to expect the least amount that I can reasonably expect, and anything that comes above that, I'm pretty happy when it shows up. So, um, you know, I know that if I'm in downtown Phoenix, I need to get myself to where I think I need to be uh, because I may not get any help any other way. Wow. Now, technology is starting to come to solve that. So... One of the technology trends that's still out in the future a little bit, but we're all starting to talk about it, 
is the use of beacon technology and what we call geofencing. Uh, and these are these are technologies that tie to apps. Um, beacons are um, essentially small little devices that you can program a message on, and they transmit via Bluetooth to phones that have this, have an app and that have that are Bluetooth enabled that pick that message up. And geofencing works exactly the same way. It's just a different application of, of technology. In geofencing, you go to a map, an online map, and you draw a little circle around where you want a message. And inside that circle, you put a message. And again, the technology is Bluetooth enabled. So when a person with the right app walks through that circle on planet Earth, that message is broadcast. So I know in our transit agency, we're actually doing some testing right now with some some beacon technology uh, to see if people are able to use it. And the way we could use it is is putting it at these large bus stops where you have multiple different shelters or bus you know bays serving different routes. So that when a person has the app, they can walk through that bus that bus you know transit center and as they're walking their their phone will be announcing to them each stop as they come past it. So that's technology that's coming. It's not widely in the market yet. That you'll see it. Uh, Washington uh, Metro has done some stuff, uh, mostly as demonstration at this point. Uh, there are some other transit agencies that have as well. We're looking at it, so it's coming. Yeah, that looks really great. Now, do you think that is something that will be available to those people who have low vision or blindness for free, or will that be? Yeah, typically, yeah. Anything that gets people off paratransit is going to be free. Um, I mean, just as a you know, as a business matter, I would much rather pay four dollars a trip to put somebody on a bus than forty to put them on paratransit. So, anything yeah. that we can do to help people make use our bus system and our rail, is, we're going to do it. Right. Now, what other types of trends and other new information are there with respect to the different types of railways? Here in Los Angeles, we have a lot more of the railways, you know, the blue line and mm-hmm. the purple yep. line and things. And uh, what can you a share lot of the, about that? Yeah, not not a whole lot. I mean, a lot of the bus technology tends to bleed over into the rail, and actually, it's really it goes both ways. So, uh, all the customer information technology, the the, G, the GPS stuff, the you know, a lot of that is. is really serving dual purpose. It works in the bus environment and it works in the rail environment. Um, you know, we have a lot of light rail here and it's, you know, similar, uh, similar environment, uh, not as, not as heavy as, as some of your heavier lines, but, um, you know, th- th- those systems are, are pretty much the same. Um, rail is actually typically a little easier um, to make accessible because you already have level boarding uh, in most places, unless it's an older system. Um, so, so the real issue on rail is just, is, is just getting people through complex station environments. Um, I think probably the most exciting thing that will happen for rail is some of this geofence technology and beacon technology, because that's, that, that's really what makes rail hard is getting through the station to the train. If you can get to the train, the train's very accessible. It's just getting there. Yes. Yes. So what is the secret to that? I was at Union Station in downtown Los Angeles, and it, it was it was a mess in there. There were so many yep. people. It was so chaotic, and I, I really did not have any clue where I was going. I had my wife there, and I just wanted her to show me through there to see if I could learn the route. 
it, it was mm-hmm. pretty difficult. But are there some any- transit environments are yeah some of those you know large rail stations are tough um, and you know even with technology you get into a certain kind of an environment that it, the level of difficulty is 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 pretty high. Um, yeah, and, and this is where I think it's important to remember that people are different. Yeah, I know people um, who are very adventurous, who are risk takers by, by by temperament, who are happy to go into an environment that's really complicated, that's really confusing, and they'll go in there with three different kinds of apps on their phone. These are mostly millennials, by the way. They'll go in there with three or four apps on their phone. <laughs> they'll have the latest and greatest of everything, they'll, you know, and they'll manage that environment. Um, you know, me, I, I used to be a little bit more adventurous than I am now. Now I kind of make a business decision. If I can figure it out in about, I don't know, 30 seconds, I'll go figure it out. And if I can, I'm going to take help. And I think one of the things we need to teach people is how to ask for help. Um, you know, how to do a reasonable amount of research on your own, how to figure out what you're able to do and what you're comfortable doing, and then also where are the sources of help in an environment where you're beyond your depth. Because when you get into a um, and I used to live in Chicago before we moved here, and you know we would go to Union Station. They have one too, and you know that's not an environment I would ever really try probably to manage, uh, unless I went there every day. Now, if I went there every day, I might I, w- I might take the effort to learn it. Um, I'd probably call a transit agency, uh, or if I um, you know to see if they have travel training or someone in an agency or a guide dog instructor. I'd probably call someone to just come work it with me. Um, I actually did this when I was traveling for work a lot. I I, I actually got um, a guide dog instructor from the school where I had my dog come out to Phoenix and and meet me. And we spent a whole day walking through the the Phoenix Sky Harbor International mm-hmm. Airport because I was living at this airport and it just was going to be too frustrating to have to get help every time. Um, but that's an investment that I made because I used it all the time. I don't think going somewhere once in a blue moon warrants that level of investment of time and effort. So I think you just have to decide where your risk is and where your tolerance is and, you know, learn up to that point and then learn how to get help beyond that point. Hey, you know, Ron, that is such great advice. And, uh, you know, I'm really glad that you said that because when I have asked people for help, I have really felt like I was a failure. You know, you should be able to get through this yourself, by yourself. Uh, um, but I've asked people because I really didn't know where I was. So I appreciate you saying that. Uh you know, the other thing that I'd like to share, and maybe you could comment on this, is that I have actually found making reservations for flights at different airports throughout the world, I have found that in every airport, it has been so easy that as soon as that I landed, there was somebody there to escort me exactly to the transportation, ground transportation, and I've never had a problem in the airport. Is that the same that you have experienced? Uh, no, um, but I, I think it varies. I think it varies by person. It varies by when you fly. It varies by the city that you travel through. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, and I also think that people have different feeling about this. Some, uh, you know, and when I was traveling, and I traveled for about uh, seven or eight years, um, almost weekly, um, oh. and usually, and often more than that. And, you know, my the places I went frequently, I, I didn't seek help because it, I found that find, getting help in an airport, I often had to wait. 
um, and I didn't want to because this is my whole life. I mean, I was living in airports. The last thing I want to do is waste more time in them. So, you know, yeah, I often had yeah. to wait. Uh, the help I got was often inferior. Um, they often didn't speak good good English, so we had communication problems. Yeah. Um, they often um, you know, didn't have good skills for just how to how to be respectful and professional with a with a blind person. Oh. So I found them to be a little bit insufferable sometimes. So I made an, I made again I made a kind of a business decision. If I used this stop all uh, this airport often, I would learn it. If I didn't use it often, um, then I would get help and just recognize that you know the help you, you, it's kind of catches catch can. So yeah, um, but it. I think it's I think it's uneven. What I would say is that if people have routinely, if you have bad experiences, the uh, Department of um, uh, Homeland Security does have um, uh, a um, uh, I think it's through the – actually, it might be Department of Transportation. I forget which. There is a line that you can contact uh, the um, uh, yeah, and file a federal complaint uh, that gets investigated and gets reported. And it gets counted and tracked uh, in terms of how airports do with accessibility for people with disabilities. So um, um, – and just a couple of things on airports since you brought them up. Um, there are things you can do. Uh, to manage your trip. Uh, and again, these are all optional. There's no requirement. You can uh, ask for um, assistance from TSA prior to going to the airport uh, so that if you have a disability, they will actually provide you with assistance ahead of time. Um, I'm told that by people who have tried it that it usually works pretty well. Um, you are not required to do that, but you can. Um, another thing with airports is we're starting to see apps that are using Beacon technology in airports. That's actually one of the good applications for Beacons. Um, and there, I think San Francisco has done a, a large-scale pilot with Beacon technology in their airport. Um, you can – there are apps now that have pretty good mapping uh, of airports, uh, the interior spaces of airports. That can be pretty handy. Um, and particularly if you're low vision, that might be – Handy because you can, if you can see a little bit, that in conjunction with a really decent and detailed app giving you good instruction might be might be sufficient. Um, so you know those 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 things are out there, and um, you know there's certainly things that you can uh, you know, experiment with on your next trip. Wow, that's really really great. This is really great information, Ron. You know, you're everything everybody said that you are, and even better. Well, you should hear what they say about me here. It's, even, it's a lot worse. <laughs> well, you know, I'd like to ask you, do you have a little bit of time that we can open up to questions to our audience? Happy to. Okay, great. If anybody has questions, go ahead and unmute your phone, and you could introduce yourself and ask Ron a question there. Ron, this is Tom Lalis from North Central Wyoming. Ah, and we live, you know, I live in the least populated state in the in the country, and and I live in a small farm town, about six thousand people, you know. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of these little towns scattered across, the, especially the Midwest, uh, that have low vision and blind people in them. And how would we go about getting a transit system or a paratransit system started in our little town or even in our county? That's a great question. And um, first off, I just want to say um, you and I actually have a connection. I'm from Muncie, Indiana, and Muncie, Indiana is a small city which uh, Jim Davis came from, and he was a famous 
cartoonist. He invented the Garfield comic strip. Oh. And I saw a Gar and I saw a Garfield episode where Garfield proved that there was no such thing as Wyoming by saying, "Do you know anybody from Wyoming?" And up to that point, I had not met anybody from Wyoming, so now I have. So he was wrong. Um, <laughs> When I get on these calls, I'm usually the only one from Wyoming. That's right, I bet. So here's my suggestion. Um, I am not the expert on how to start a rural transit uh, system. There are people in ACB who actually could probably talk to you about this. Um, one of them is Alice uh, Richhart. She is chair of the ACB Transportation Committee. She lives in a small community, and she actually was instrumental in um, dragging them into the transit environment. Um, okay. What I will tell you is the first thing that you need are allies. Um, you need people who agree with you, uh, and not just people with disabilities. You need business owners, and particularly in a deep red state, uh, and I think it's fair to say that Wyoming is a deep red state, um, yes. you, need, you need the business community with you. You need to, you need to sell your state legislature because in, in rural states, the State Department of Transportation oversees the dispensation of federal transportation funds. You need to convince your state that you need transit, and you need your business community with you. Um, it, it really is because transit is local, it's grassroots. You really have to start at the grassroots level um, to make the case. Um, and from there, it's really, you know, in your case, you would start with your state and really start having those conversations about, hey, we need transportation. Um, here's why. Here's the business case. Um, you know, here's here's here are the benefits. You know, da 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 da. -da. Probably an uphill battle. Hey, Ron. Um, and yep. Would you repeat the name of the person from ACB? Mm -hmm. Alice Richhart. She's the chair of the transportation committee, and she's in Georgia. So. Um, so, Tom, one other thing I would tell you um, is you may not need a transit system. What you may want to consider is working with um, the local community to establish a volunteer transportation uh, system. Um, and this is something that um, we do see in rural communities where there's not a density, there's not enough people to, to fund. You, know, to, you need a lot of trips to, to cover the cost of the infrastructure to build a transit system. But what you might be able to do is is set up a system that depends on volunteer drivers. And there are funding sources dedicated to rural communities that will reimburse people for mileage. Um, and they will reimburse them for the use of their vehicle if they want to set up kind of an informal transportation system. Let me give you a resource. It is called the Community Transportation Association of America. Um, CTAA, okay, they have ambassadors in each of the, the uh, 10 federal, U.S. federal regions, including yours, uh, who can actually help you and give you geographically more specific information and advice on how to solve transportation problems in your community. So you're in region, I believe, seven. Your federal uh, regional headquarters is Colorado Springs, I think. Um, but again, those folks can talk to you more specifically about um, you know, what is in your state and what you can do in your state. I, I, I guess my answer, you know, before you started was probably have to develop some kind of just about a business plan to to have a demonstrated need, you know. Yep. Yep. 
Okay. Okay. All right. Great. Thank right. you. Um, thank you. Next question. I wasn't going to say this is Tom Frank from Vermont, and I was going to say this is not a question, but we are the most rural state, smaller, the second largest, or second smallest next to Wyoming in population. But we get the Vermont Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I happen to be board president uh, of that. We get about $150,000 a year from the state legislature, and we have our own volunteer transportation system. So there you go. Uh, folks in the rural areas, but it's statewide, we get volunteers, they get their 51 cents a mile or whatever, and that's how we deal yep. with it in in Vermont. Oh, that's great, yes. Next question for Ron? Okay. Well, Ron, I want to tell you, this has been great information for all of us, and if anybody wants to get in touch with you, uh, for other questions they may have, uh, what's the best way they might contact you? First off, I'm on all of the major ACB lists, ACBL, um, ACB leadership, some of those lists. Um, you can contact me. I will give you my uh, email address. Um, please don't sell it to scammers. Um, it's ronbrook67 at gmail.com. Um, and I'm happy to, if you have any transportation questions, I'm happy to try to answer or to get you to somebody who can. Okay, great. So that's ronbrooks67 six, seven at gmail.com. Gmail. Uh-huh. Yep. Great. Well, thank you very, very much for all of this information and sharing your time. And we'd also like to thank uh, Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA for recording tonight's podcast. This will be up on the website probably in about one week. So we, we thank all of you for being here. and. Join us next month when Leslie Spoon and Richard Rueda talk to us about how to network. So on behalf of everybody here at CCLVI, thank you very much and have a pleasant evening.